few weeks back, six weeks, I think, eight weeks now, my uh, family and I got to spend about 10 days traveling around in Italy. And I remember when I was traveling around, just looking at many of the things that you see and thinking, without a context, there are several, or not several, but there's one particular image all over Italy that is in several places that is a strange sight. And that without understanding the background, it might seem a little creepy. On churches, shrines by the roadside, on walls of restaurants displayed in people's windows, even hanging around people's necks. Everywhere you looked, there was no escaping this image. And that was the image of a bloodied man nailed to a cross. Now, if you didn't understand any of the background, any of the history, didn't know the story, you would walk around that country going, this is creepy and weird. What's wrong with these people? What's up with the Italians? Is this some kind of way for the Italian government to warn their citizens against breaking the law? What kind of damage do these images have on the psychological development of all the children of this country? Why do they have these pictures of a man nailed to a cross? Why the fascination? And then when you discover that it has something to do with their religion, you're even more confused. What kind of sick and twisted religion regularly remembers a man nailed to a cross? Do you remember when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out a few years ago and the reaction that so many people had to that movie. Out of context and without understanding it, it's certainly a disturbing image. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul said in the New Testament when he wrote, when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. I'm sure many people, as they go around Italy and they see all of those images, they either think it is nonsense or they are offended by what they see. And yet, in another one of his letters, Paul said, If if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross, no one would be offended. Paul acknowledges that offense is, is actually one of the right responses to the cross. We've become a little too insular in our faith if we are surprised that the cross still offends people. I mean, just try to put yourself back into those shoes. Look at the image. The cross has always and will always offend people. Now, there are many nice spiritualities out there. 
If you want a nice spirituality, you can just Google it, and you will find all kinds of options where you can connect with nature, you can float peacefully outside of your body, you can visualize your wishes into some kind of reality. But if you're a Christian, you get a man nailed to boards. Some religions have no place for the cross and even deny that Jesus actually died on a cross. It's tempting to to fudge on this whole crucifixion thing and just preach positive thinking. Just skip Good Friday and go right to Easter. But as sweet as that might be, it's no longer Christianity. Because there's no escaping that at the heart of Christianity is a man nailed to boards. It's for this reason that Jesus spent so much time preaching, so much time teaching, so much time illustrating, and so much time preparing his disciples for the cross. Because he understood that without understanding it, the only thing that it will create is an offense. Or a reaction to it being foolish. And so earlier today in the service, we heard Pastor Kelly read the passage of Scripture that we're going to focus on from John chapter 12. And this passage is an extended teaching of Jesus preparing his people for the cross. Helping them understand why the cross. What is the meaning of the cross? Now, when you ask the typical Christian, what's the purpose of the cross? The usual answer you will get is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive people's sins. Now, that is correct. And yet, you may be surprised to discover that that was not actually Jesus' main reason for dying on the cross. In the passage that we looked at and heard from earlier today, in Jesus' own words, Jesus replied and said, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. We read of some of Jesus' struggle. He says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray? Father, save me from this hour. But it's for this very reason that I came. So, Father, bring glory to your name. And then a loud voice spoke out of the heavens and said, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do it once again. And this is one of the things the cross did. First and foremost, before anything else, the cross brought glory to God. It's hard to remember, even for followers of God, like many of us are here today, it's hard for us to remember that not everything is about us. When we constantly evaluate a worship service on, what did it do for me? When we constantly look at prayer as kind of a request box that we slot our requests into, hoping for them to be granted. When we read scripture for advice for my personal life, we need continual reminders that it's not about us. 
Because our natural tendency, even in the Christian faith, is to make it about us. Even to make the cross to be all about us. Now certainly there is an aspect where it's about us. But in the ultimate scheme of things, the glory of God always comes first. God's creation, God's salvation that he offers to people, the justification that God offers, redemption, restoration, all acts of God are ultimately to bring glory to him. And when God gets glory, creation wins. When God gets glory, then that is what is best for us. Whenever we reverse the order and try to make it about us and then see if that gives God glory, it distorts the picture and even distorts the picture of who God is. It's about God's glory and that our primary direction always is to be God focused. It's why when Jesus taught us how to pray, he begins with the words that we start with, our Father who is in heaven, may your name be made holy. All prayer should properly start With God in heaven, may you be holy. It starts our prayer off right away from it not just being a laundry list of things about me. It starts with saying it's about you. It's about your glory. It's about your holiness. And Jesus showed us what it looks like for humanity to bring glory to God. Jesus became the true human, and lived a life ultimately about God's glory. The reverse of what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve, what they did is they tried to steal God's glory for themselves. They tried to become the center of their universe. They tried to make it all about who they were, and what that ended up doing was separating them from God and bringing death and destruction, and sin into the world. Because they forgot that ultimately it always has to be about God first. Jesus, in contrast to Adam and Eve, became the obedient, sacrificial servant. The one who even, in some mysterious way, chose not to cling to God. That ultimate sacrifice so that through it God would be glorified. It's worship. Jesus shows us that worship is about giving everything to God so that he is glorified. Absolute surrender to God's will. Now, we must remember that even though this is Jesus himself we're talking about, this was never easy even for Jesus. Or else we wouldn't read about him struggling in prayer and saying, my soul is deeply troubled. Father, save me from this hour. And yet, for Jesus, there was something more important 
than a troubled soul. There was something more important than his anxiety, his fear. There was something more important, and that was to bring glory to God. Lord, even though I feel this way, yet not my will, but your will be done. So that you may be glorified. To which we then read God responding, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. God had been continuing bringing glory to his name. Through his creation, he brought glory to his name. Through choosing the people of Israel and Abraham's line, he brought glory to his name. Through sending the law, he brought glory to his name. By sending the prophets, he brought glory to his name. All throughout the scriptures, we read of God bringing glory to his name, but God is saying, once again, I will bring glory to my name. And this time, he says, but now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. God is now going to do a new thing, and he's going to bring glory to his name through his special son, Jesus. God is going to be so identified with Jesus that the Son of Man, Jesus, is going to be glorified and his glorification will match the glorification of God. God is going to be glorified, in particular, through Jesus on the cross. God's glory is displayed as the cross reveals a God who in his very nature is a God of love. He's a God of submission. He's a God of sacrifice. He's a God of surrender. He's a God of commitment. As one author preacher says, the cross served not only to reconcile a broken humanity to God, but also and above all to glorify God's holy name. Hear that again? Yes, the cross did serve to reconcile a broken humanity. Jesus did die for our sins, but God also and above all died to glorify God's holy name. But God's glory is not something that he chose to just keep to himself. In today's passage, we also see that the cross revealed God's glory to the world. Jesus prayed, Father, bring glory to your name. And the Father responded by saying, I have done so already, and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, Some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. I always find that passage of scripture uh, a a little bit humorous. uh, Because it says the crowd 
what they heard was what some thought was thunder. Some thought maybe some kind of angel was there. Uh, the crowd's completely confused. They're, they heard something. And then Jesus says, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. And I'm thinking, what benefit? I don't even know what it was. How was that a benefit to me? I'm not sure. Was there a thunderstorm that went on? What happened? How could this be a benefit for the people if no one understood it? Like everything that Jesus has said and done to this point, it becomes a benefit for the people in light of the cross. Everything is moving towards the cross and everything begins to make sense in light of the cross. Obviously, by the time John wrote this gospel, by the time John wrote this down, they now knew what the voice said. That's why it's recorded. So it became a benefit for you, the way God spoke out of heaven at that time, in light of the cross. It became a benefit for all of us now, today, those of us here, they now knew it was God's voice proclaiming his glory, especially in Jesus' cross to come. This is what Jesus said earlier in John. He said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's a title he often used to refer to himself. So in other words, when you have lifted me up on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. And there's something very significant about how Jesus says that the I am is the very name of the God of the Jewish scriptures. And Jesus is saying, you're not getting it all right now, but as soon as I am lifted up on the cross... In light of the cross, everything I've done, everything I've said, everything I've been leading to, all the miracles, all the sayings, when you look at the cross, and in many ways it's, it's, it's sort of after the cross, when you look back upon the cross, when you begin to put all the pieces together, you will see that the cross was what defined me as the God of the Old Testament then you will understand. Again, in today's passage, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And some say, well, maybe he's talking about when he ascended into heaven. When he's no, because the, the very next line says, he said this to indicate how he was going to die. When I'm put on a cross, when I'm lifted up, I will draw everyone to myself. The cross brings glory to God, but the cross also proclaims God's glory to everyone else. And as it proclaims God's glory to everyone else, it draws all people to him. The cross brings all people to God. Notice how this story, the way it started out, is there were some Greeks, non-Jewish people, some Greeks that somehow had heard about Jesus, and they came and they started asking Jesus' disciples about who this Jesus guy was. They wanted to know if they too could 
meet Jesus, if they too could hear from Jesus, they obviously started to recognize that this guy has something to say to us as well as the people of his own race. It's a foreshadow of the fact that Jesus didn't come to be simply a Jewish savior. God used the Jews to prepare the way for Jesus so that through Jesus, all people of every race, every nationality, every background, Jews and Gentiles, all people would be drawn into one chosen people. The salvation plan really is not individual. It's just about me and Jesus. The salvation plan is corporate. It's about Jesus saving a people. Jesus creating a family, a nation, his people. The two chapters before chapter 12 already begin to uh, bring this up. In chapter 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep too that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be one flock with one shepherd. Who's he speaking about? I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold, not of the people of Israel. I have other sheep. And they're going to hear my voice too. And they are going to become one flock. I'm not going to be the shepherd of two flocks. One flock. And then the very next chapter, John 11, we read, Jesus would die for the entire Jewish nation. And not only for that nation but to bring together and to unite all the children of God scattered around the world. Notice again what it's saying. The cross draws all people to be one in him. There is only one flock, not two. There is only one group of sheep, not two. Other sheep will join the one sheepfold. Together they will have one shepherd. God's scattered children from all the nations will come together and be part of one family. This whole idea that God has two plans, one for the Jews and one for the the Gentiles, is completely unbiblical. God's got one people. He's calling one family together. And it's no longer about race or background. It's about being united in him. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says, When Jesus was lifted up, exalted, and glorified, he became like a spiritual magnet. And he drew to himself Gentiles as well as Jews, all without distinction, to become one people. This is actually the fulfillment of what God's promise to Abraham was. Many of us right now are reading through the Old Testament, reading through the book of Genesis. And we've just read through the last couple of weeks God's promise to Abraham. And in that promise, in Genesis 22, we read God saying that through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. 
because Abraham obeyed me. Now, Paul picks up on this very phrase in the New Testament and says that the offspring of Abraham, he makes note that it is said in the singular, not plural. So what Paul says in the New Testament is that the offspring of Abraham is not the offsprings of Abraham, the people of Abraham, but the offspring, singular, of Abraham who ends up being the very person, Jesus Christ. There will come one from Abraham, just like promised all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, there will come one from the seed of the woman, And this one from the seed of the woman, this one from the seed singular of Abraham, will be the one that will unite all people under God. This one being Jesus. He will draw all people to him. In Galatians, Paul says, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's interesting how Paul plays around with that word, that the seed of Abraham is Christ. But now those that come to Christ, whether they're Jews or Gentiles or whatever background, then they now become so united with Christ that they now then too become the seed of Abraham. We, in a sense, become Christ's body, the seed of Abraham. We become, in a sense, Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are from Abraham. That's the line. Jesus did this through the cross. Out of his death, Jesus brought life to many new kernels that would have died if they had not found life in him. That's why Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. So the cross is about the glory of God. The cross is about God displaying his glory to the world. And the cross is about God uniting all people, Jew or Gentile, all people into one family, the family of Abraham, through what Christ did on the cross. But in today's passage, it also shows us one other thing that the cross did. And that is the cross defeated Satan. In one of his letters, John writes, The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Speaking of what the cross accomplished, Jesus said, The time for judging the world has come. When Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Paul, picking up on the same theme, said, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them. Listen to how he says this. On the cross. 
his victory over them on the cross. What seemed to be the ultimate defeat of God, Jesus nailed to the cross, became what was the victory of God over the realm of the devil. The early church illustrated this by picturing Jesus on the cross as like bait that you put on a fish hook. And the fish hook then is put into the water as the fisherman tries to fish. And the Jesus bait then, the little Satan fish swims along and sees the the Jesus bait on the hook. And the Satan fish decides, oh, perfect. Great way I can devour Jesus and I can destroy him. So the little Satan fish comes, bites the Jesus bait, and then no sooner does he bite it than the fisherman pulls the line out of the water because the Satan fish has got this hook in its mouth and he has been defeated. C.S. Lewis illustrates this with Aslan and the white witch and the lion witch and the wardrobe. This almost trick of the devil, where the devil, right when he thought he had won, right when he bit the bait, he ended up discovering that it was to his own destruction. An early church work called the Odes of Solomon, written closely around the time that the Gospel of John was written, talks about God as the one who, by Christ's hands, overthrew the seven-headed dragon and destroyed Satan's seed. Now, this sounds wonderful in theory, but when you look around at the world, and I hesitate to say when you look around at the world today, because the world's no more evil today than it's always been. So when you look around the world anytime, it, it makes you scratch your head and go, With so much evil still going on in the world, what does it mean to say that Satan was defeated by Christ on the cross? Well, maybe a parallel example will give you, will help you. We know that God told Adam in the Garden of Eden that if you eat from the tree that I tell you not to, that if you eat from that tree in the day that you eat of it, you will die. But all of us who have read Genesis this uh, last couple of weeks know that when Adam and Eve ate from that tree, they did not drop dead that very day. They didn't bite, boom, and just fall over. So what does it mean when God says, on the day you will eat of it, you will die, if they didn't die on the day they ate of it? It meant that on the day they ate of it, the Death became an inevitable reality to their world that would come to pass. There would be no escaping it now. On the day that they ate of it, they set into motion the destruction of disobeying God. It would come, it was determined because of their action on that day. In the same way, the day of the cross defeated Satan even though the full implications of what that looks like has not yet been fully realized. That day set into motion the inevitable result of Satan's defeat. It's no longer a question of whether or not Satan will win. It's over for all intents and purposes. 
he lost the battle on that day. No matter what he may try to do with his last seizures that he's throwing around, we are to continually remind him and we are to continually remind ourselves that he is a defeated foe. And God will fix the damage he continues to try and do. Just as we sang in a mighty fortress a little bit earlier, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? For lo, his doom is sure. It's not his doom is probable. His doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. He's defeated. If you're a betting person and you want to put money on this, put everything on God. It's a guarantee win. The devil, the book of Revelation says, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake, the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, and there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. They will and are defeated. But that still maybe has you raise the question, if that's the case, then why didn't God just finish it all off on the cross? If, if he was defeated on the cross, and he was so that his end is going to happen no matter what, that it's probable, it's been sealed by the cross, why didn't God just end it then? Why all of this extra stuff to allow him some of this last temper tantrum to wreck people's lives? Well, that's where you come into the story. See, God didn't finish it all off at the cross because he had you and me in mind. And this is where, though the cross is all about God's glory, it is also about you and me. You see, God didn't finish it all at the cross because he wanted you to experience his love and to join his family. You see, once God finishes it all off, it's over. There's no more chances. There's no more choosing. There's no more ability to become part of his family. The cross shows God's love and glory. It defeats the devil, and it draws all, and here's the key, it draws all willing people into his family. God calls you to join his family, but he doesn't force anyone. In the same passage of scripture that we read today, Jesus said twice, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. And again, he says, put your trust in the light. While there is still time, then you will become children of the light. If you want to be part of his family, Jesus says, you must follow me. You must put your trust 
in the light. I've died for all. I'm drawing all people, no matter what your background, no matter how messed up your life is, no matter what your family circumstances are, no matter what you've done or people have done to you, all people can start new and join a new family. But they must be willing to trust me. They must be willing to say yes to me. The Heidelberg Catechism says, the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ are my soul righteousness before God, provided I accept this and appropriate for myself through faith. The satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ are all yours, provided you accept this. Through faith. Will you join Christ's family? Many here today have already made that decision, but not everybody has. Some have even been going to church for years, but have never made the decision to finally say, yes, I will say yes to what Christ did for me on the cross. I recognize his sacrifice for me. His death was in place of my death because of sin. And what I inherited from what Adam and Eve did. And I will say yes to Christ. I, in my office, at home, I have some crosses Some of the crosses, I even have crucifix with Christ still on the cross. Um, Because for me, it's a continual reminder that I preach Christ and him crucified. And that his death on the cross is the scandalous way of how he paid for my sins so I could be free. It's for me a continual reminder There can even be some health if it doesn't become superstitious and it doesn't become um, some kind of mindless practice. There can even be some real health in just identifying ourselves with a cross like the Catholics do. And saying, I am covered by the cross. There's something I found kind of profound when I was with my family in Italy. Every time they prayed, they, they did that. And again, like anything... Let's be honest, some of the ways we say grace as evangelicals can be pretty rote and not really thought through, so it can happen with anything. But when it's thought through, there's something beautiful about ending a prayer and reminding yourself, if you remember it, that I, every time I pray, I am covered by the cross. I'm identified by the cross. The cross is what has set me free and made me part of Christ's family. This scandalous cross. In conclusion, Thomas Oden, I think, captures it well when he says, Christianity is a religion of the cross. The cross is Christianity's most accurate visual summary. Yet the cross is repulsive. We turn our eyes away from a public execution. 
How could it have happened that Christianity could be such an ascetic and beautiful religion and yet have such an ugly central symbol? And yet we are reminded that at the cross, the most undeserved suffering and the most deserved goodness meet with a devastating irony. And so, yes, at the center and at the heart of my faith is something that, if you don't understand, is an offense and foolish. But when you do understand it, it's the most beautiful picture telling us about the God who loves us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. That you did not abandon humanity to our sin. You did not forget about us. And you did not destroy us all or wipe us away. But that you came to reconcile and to restore a broken relationship with us. Through love and justice meeting in the cross. Lord, I pray for those that still have not made that acknowledgement that you will stir in their hearts and help them to bow the knee and to surrender themselves to you. To identify themselves as a people of the cross. That, Lord, when we put everything else aside, all of our different denominational ideas, all of our different structures or approaches or, or theological intricacies, that at the, the end of it all, Lord, what unites us and what we all stand together in is that our God in Christ died for our sins on the cross and defeated the devil and set us free. Lord, may we be your people, united just as you prayed that all people would be drawn together, united in your cross. May we preach it, proclaim it, and live it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.